0: And I'm welcoming back my partner in this enterprise from his sojourn in Scotland, Elliot Cohen, who is the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic International Studies. Elliot, welcome back from Scotland.
1: Well, thank you. I will uh, I will spare you and the audience uh, some of my large stock of memorized poems by Robert Burns, complete with phony accent, but I will say it. If you have, for people who have not been to uh, Edinburgh, uh, which is where I've spent the last week and a half, it is a glorious city. It is just a beautiful city. Uh, there are a lot of interesting things to do. It's a very literary city. You know, the biggest monument there, and it is a whacking big monument, is to Sir Walter Scott. Uh, and and in fact, one of the things that was fun. Uh, there are many things that were fun about this trip, and I'll get to the serious purpose in a moment. Uh, but it was to use it as an occasion to revisit walter scott uh by reading some of his scottish novels and they are wonderful they're truly wonderful they are you know walter scott who who was extraordinarily popular in the 19th century became sort of known as a writer of historical romances and you know one of the classics that you never read
0: ivanhoe
1: ivanhoe yeah, but but actually it's the scottish novels that are in many ways the best, which are about the period in roughly the century uh, running up to his period, which is the early 19th century. Um, And it includes the 45 and things before that, but also things later than that. And he is really the man who invented the historical novel. And and you really appreciate his characterization is brilliant, but he, you know, he knows the people and the places and it really comes through. And then we, We visited his uh, home, Abbotsford, which is also magnificent. Um, And I did come back with some excellent scotch whiskey, which I hope to share with you, Eric. Having said all that, let's talk about substance for a change.
0: Well, I know that you were doing more than uh, reading Walter Scott and and sipping scotch while you were in Edinburgh. Do you want to share any of (laughs) of what what your your actual reason for going (laughs) to Edinburgh was?
1: Yeah, well, I'm... uh, I also have to say, by the way, the weather's a hell of a lot cooler than it is in Washington. Um, So the reason for going there was uh, a workshop, which is one in a series, which I'm running with my friend and colleague, Phillips O'Brien, who we should also get on the podcast, by the way, um, who's a wonderful military historian at St. Andrews on military analysis of uh, Russia and Ukraine. In the run-up to the war and to some extent thereafter, and what went wrong. Because the you know, the fact is that the estimates of Russian military power and of Ukrainian military power and performance were way, way off. And that's, of course, we're just looking at open sources, but I think it's pretty clear it was true in the intelligence community as well. You know, this will all become public. I, I can't talk about people who were there. It was a fantastic mixture of academics, uh, retired military officers, some intelligence community people. But the the one item which I wanted to highlight, uh, and perhaps you and I can talk a bit about, it, I think one of the points that uh, came through repeatedly is that one of the big mistakes that people made, and they make in a number of contexts, is... Failing to see the way in which armies really reflect their societies, and can't help but reflect their societies, and this could be a source of strength, as is in the case with Ukraine, uh, a you know flawed but democratic society where people can take initiative and uh, and so forth, um, or they can militaries can be really hampered by the nature of their society, and particularly the Russian military, which like the society that it's coming out of and the political order is corrupt hierarchical brutal and that affects military performance and you know this is a core insight of military sociology i think but one which people often forget you know i uh, it just seems to me too often people get caught up in the order of battle the you know, numbers of tanks, numbers of submarines, performance characteristics of missiles, all of which are very important. Uh, don't get me wrong. But but they miss something that's really quite fundamental.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, of course, uh, something that the late Sir Michael Howard used to talk about a lot in terms of the social dimension of war, uh, which you're right. We I think we typically uh, tend to to slight. Um, well. Uh, on that note um what do you make of what is going on right now on the battlefield i mean you're you're beginning to detect i think uh or one is beginning to detect in a lot of the commentary you know a rising chorus of you know we're headed towards a stalemate i've heard a lot of people on uh, in the finance world on Wall street are saying oh we're, we're gonna head to a stalemate and in october the Biden administration will, you know, impose a, a settlement on Ukraine and Russia somehow, as if the Biden administration, you know, can wave a magic wand and imp- impose a settlement on people. But, you know, I will confess to the fact that it is a little nervous making that the gains, and there are gains from the six weeks of the counteroffensive, have been pretty limited. No big breakthroughs, of course. My own sense is that. It was never in the cards that this was going to be, you know, like Kharkiv or like Kherson. Russians have had a long time to dig in. Moreover, the Ukrainians have received less than 50 percent of the equipment that, you know, people talk about and have, you know, been uh, has been promised to them. And so there's plenty of reason for them, you know, to be taking their time. But I confess to being a bit nervous. What's what's your take?
1: Well, you know, the, of course, nobody really knows or the ones who know aren't talking. Um I, I guess my basic feeling about it is the Ukrainians did try initially to see how what conventional attacks would look like. They quickly realized that they were going to have to take a longer approach to finding weak spots in their Russian lines. A and B, uh the Russian... It's not just that the Russians are dug in. The Russians are also attacking, uh, and I think this is being done to throw the Ukrainians off balance, to you know pull in reserves and and so on. So it's they're not. It's not stupid on their part.
0: They're attacking in the east, and and I think hoping to draw some of the right. forces in the south up to the north and to the east, in order to disrupt the counteroffensive.
1: So here here's what seemed to me to be the absurd. Observ- I think I, in a situation like this it's very important to just stick with the observable facts. So what are the observable facts? Well, one is, it's very clear that the Ukrainians are actually having, are are going very aggressively after Russian logistics, after Russian command and control, in other words, command posts, um, after, you know, fuel and uh, targets of that nature. uh, And ammunition dumps. And so, and I think what they're doing is they're, they're adapting their means uh, to what the tools are that they have at hand. They don't have the kind of massive superiority and the kinds of things you would need to breach deep defenses. They don't have air superiority. I'm not sure anybody will ever have air superiority in the old sense. So what they're going to do is first, I think, really chew their way through a lot of the Russian infrastructure, and then they'll begin attacking.
0: They're also short-range short air defenses yep. and mine-clearing equipment, both of which are essential for this kind of operation. Right.
1: So I, I think what they're doing is they're going to take their time. Uh, and, you know, I'd, I'd remind our listeners that if you look at the breakthrough battles towards the end of World War II, you know, everybody thinks about the Maginot Line and the Germans taking France in a week and a half or the Israelis in the Six-Day War. That's not the situation that we're looking at we're looking at something that is, you know, much more comparable to the Allied breakthrough at Alamein, which it took two weeks to get through German defenses at Alamein. And that was with the Germans having much less resources than the Russians did, you know, because their supply lines have been uh, chewed up by the Royal Air Force uh, and, the, and the Royal Navy. But similarly, you know, attacks along the Siegfried Line and other deeply fortified
0: the hedgerows in Normandy. Right.
1: So it's not, it's not, they won't, they won't necessarily get there. It just, it's, it's there. And the, you know, the Russians are mining vast areas on a scale that we've never seen before. Another observable fact is that the Ukrainians have not committed their best trained units yet, or at least have only committed a very small fraction of them. So they are, and I think this, it shows real generalship on the Ukrainians' part, the you know where i'm sure people on the front lines are crying for help to say no we're going to hold our our reserves and i you know i don't know how, what your reaction is but my reaction to a lot of the reporting when you know and i give credit obviously to reporters who go into the front lines which are really very dangerous yep. they're even more dangerous in some respects than iraq or afghanistan you know, if you talk to the guys who are in the front lines of a very difficult fight none of them are going to be saying this is great things are wonderful here Things are going very well. You you would have probably been appalled if you listened to what you know American GIs were saying in early December in the Ardennes forest. Yeah. Um. But but the you know the question is the larger reporting on the larger position, and and I guess you know my feeling remains that. Uh, at some point, it's entirely—it's con- not certain by any stretch of the imagination—but it's entirely conceivable that the Russians will crack. I mean, this is a vast front that they're trying to defend, and they're stretched
0: thin in terms of personnel.
1: They are stretched thin. It's not clear that those—you know—they're second and third. And For all I know, the fourth and fifth lines are actually manned. I mean, you know, they've got—they don't have enough troops for that. So, and and it's also, by the way, this will lead to other things we'll talk about. Uh, you know how will Russian uh, decision making be affected by disturbed internal politics? So I remain—I mean, like you, I'm I'm anxious, but I understand the limits of what I know and just seeing what I can observe. I tend to think, you know, too early to tell, and I still think that they tend to have a a pretty good chance of at least breaking the land bridge.
0: You know, just a couple of observations on, on what you've said, Elliot. One is you're beginning to see in some telegram channels, Russian soldiers talking about the impact of the U.S. cluster munitions, which are now arriving. Um, I mean, those have arrived pretty quickly because a lot of them are, were, as you know, prepositioned in, in Europe. So we didn't have to you know, ship them over from, from CONUS. But that seems to be having, you know, uh, An impact. I mean, it's in part just because in these artillery duels, the Ukrainians now seem to have a bit of an advantage in the pure artillery fight, uh, even as they suffer from other disadvantages we've talked about. But that is very, is becoming palpable to the Russians on the ground, apparently, as they get hit with these cluster munitions. You know, I've always thought that the idea that the Ukrainians were going to do, you know, combined arms mobile operations based on four months of training, given the way we train our guys to do it, was sort of fanciful. So it's not surprising that rather than very large scaled operations, this is now more, you know, kind of platoon and company sized units doing the very hard work of clearing out, you know, these uh, fortified, you know, clearing the mines and these uh, lines of fortifications and obstacles. So that, you know, that none of that really is surprising. And so like you, I think, you know, we have to give this some time. I'm still puzzled by the administration's refusal uh, to provide uh, attackums uh, to the um, Ukrainians. So the Brits have uh, supplied Storm Shadow, and the French have supplied their version of the same missile, the Scalp-E. Which has a range roughly of 150 miles, the Atakum would give another 50 to 40 to 50 miles of range, and would actually bring all of Crimea into range for the Ukrainians. And you know, I I keep hearing this persistent argument, you know, from the Pentagon that we don't have very many of these, so we can't give them to the Ukrainians, even as we're preparing to sell 40 of them to Morocco. Um, and in my question is maybe you can answer this, but some of these surely were set, you know, set aside for U.S. war plans uh, to deal with Russia in in Europe. So why not let the Ukrainians use them to deal with Russia now and, you know, uh, use future defense appropriations to uh, restock and buy more in the future?
1: So I look, I think that you put your finger on it. I mean, my guess is that there are two sources of opposition. One is just, the, the administration, well, maybe three, possibilities. One is, you know, the Russians may escalate. Uh, I think that everybody realizes that's a pretty threadbare argument at this point. I think some of it is just stubbornness, you know, some or, or peek at the Ukrainians for saying we need more stuff. It's just, well, we said no. We're going to show you that when we say no, we really mean no. Unlike the previous time when we said no to high Mars and no to tanks and no to other things. Um, but there I, I would never underestimate the role of petulance uh in in the way people make decisions. Um, and by the way, it's not as though we followed through on a lot of our commitments. One of the dirty secrets out there is we've said we're going to send tanks. The tanks, I don't believe,
0: have actually still not there. Yeah.
1: They're still not there. We've we said we're sending patriots. I believe we've sent one battery. Yeah.
0: There are patriots there, but not ones we've sent.
1: Right, so there, you know, we, we, I think sometimes the administration likes to think that if you announce something, you've you've done it, but but I I, th- I bet there is opposition coming from the military, and it is exactly what you said. Well, we need X hundred for a real war with Russia, and you know the problem is you just made a strategic argument, and meaning no disrespect to. A lot of people engage in this. I think there's a lot of obtuseness there, and that that kind of reasoning saying, "Hey, look, you know, we're destroying the Russian army now. Why, why not? That's what these we, what these weapons are for." And I, it's, I think it's just one manifestation of the kind of bureaucratic inertia that that we suffer from. I mean, why haven't we really ramped up production of a lot of our long-range precision missiles? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's crystal clear. You're going to need vast numbers. If you get into a war, you're going to need vast numbers of harpoons and long-range anti-ship,
0: anti-ship missiles. Yeah,
1: and long-range air-to-surface missile. I mean, all kinds of all kinds of things. That's a clear lesson of the war. It's a clear lesson of the war. You consume a heck of a lot more of these things than you ever anticipate in peacetime. So why aren't we putting together the infrastructure for all that and 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 you know the big long-term buys? And it's it just it's it's a lack of um, a kind of a wartime sense of urgency. You know, I, I think I've used the quote on the podcast before. It's, you know, the, as the French say, a la guerre comme la guerre. If you're at war, act like you're at war. But but I don't think there's that sense of visceral sense of warlike right. engagement now.
0: Because the Ukrainians are at war and we're not you know, we're right. not suffering the missile strikes on grain right. facilities or although we may start to feel the price effects of, of some of this, if the Russians have their way.
1: Don't you think that we patronize the Ukrainians a lot? I mean, say, well, they don't oh, really yes. need them. We, yes. we know what they really need. Yes. Or I mean, the worst thing that was actually not American. There was some Germans saying, well, I, we don't really think the Ukrainians are that good at operational art. I mean the German army,
0: which is right. at this point, pretty worthless. joke. Right. Yeah. I know I agree with all of that. I, I, I detect that uh, from what I hear inside Uh, the Pentagon as well on the question of like, you know, lessons learned, you know, there is, you know, on the one hand, people say, oh yes, we're studying this war very carefully. On the other hand, I think there is this very patronizing attitude about the Ukrainians and the kinds of adaptations that they've made. Uh, And, and you do get this sense of like, we know what they need more than they do, you know um, which uh, I, I think is, you know, is wrong. I mean, the outgoing under, you know, secretary Colin Cole was quoted in the, uh, papers as saying, you know, the, what they need is, the, you know, the fight right in front of them, not the long distance fight. Well, the reality is they need both. Right. And how would Colin Cowell know? Yeah. So, I mean, I I, mean you know, th-
1: this, is the, this is the thing I find. Astounding. At, at the moment, there's only one group of people in this world who are genuinely expert on the subject of fighting a conventional war with Russia. And they all speak Ukrainian.
0: Right. I do take solace in the fact that uh, although there was reporting uh, in The Washington Post this week that you know there's opposition in DoD uh, to attack them and people were quoted as saying we're no closer to resolving that uh, you know uh, decision or reaching a, a decision to do that uh, than we have been earlier it, it's also clear as Jake Sullivan has confirmed that the you know president uh, has said he's thinking about this and he's had conversations with Zelensky about this and since, in this administration power is so, you know, uh, concentrated in the White House. I'm holding out hope that eventually this will be like a lot of the other decisions you and I have been talking about over the last year and a half, uh, one, which will be, you know, a day late and a dollar short, but at least it'll arrive at some
1: point. Yeah. I mean, put, put somewhat, uh, more nastily. I mean, the good news is they don't have the courage of bad convictions, um, and so they and they do move. And I give them credit. The truth is I give them credit for it. I think I think, by the way, what one change that's coming up, uh, which you and I have talked a little bit about offline, is there's going to be a new undersecretary of defense for policy, uh, Derek Chalet, who we both know um, and who I think would probably, you know, you, you and I, we, we both suspect is probably closer to our view of the world than uh, Colin Kahl, who we also both know. But of course, you were the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy. So could you, maybe you could explain to everybody what the USDP does and why it's, uh, and don't be modest, why it's as important a job as it really is.
0: The job essentially uh, is the third ranking policy job uh, in the Department of Defense. That doesn't mean you're third in line by precedence you know to succeed the secretary if some god-awful catastrophe was to befall the senior leadership of the Pentagon but it does mean that you are the senior manager of the interagency process on all matters of policy for the Department of Defense uh, that you oversee all the bilateral US defense relationships with uh, with other countries you're responsible for both the articulation and implementation of the national defense strategy um, by, by statute. You also have special responsibilities for counterterrorism and defense export controls. You oversee uh, the two field agencies, the Defense Technology Security Administration, which is meant to preserve America's qualitative military edge by controlling defense technologies, and uh, the Defense Security Cooperation Agency, which oversees the Foreign Military Sales program uh, and you advise the Secretary of Defense again by statute on all the contingency plans, uh, that is to say, the war plans uh, that the Department of Defense uh, combatant commanders uh, are responsible for developing with the approval of the of the secretary so. It, it's a. Uh, it also, by the way, you sit on the Nuclear Weapons Council and are responsible for, you know, arms control, et cetera. So it's a a, a job with, and and I've only scratched the surface. I mean, the um, DOD directive that sets out the responsibilities is kind of eye watering when you read it. It's actually very scary, uh, or it was scary to me when I read it before I was sworn <laughs> in, because um, it really is. Um, you know, you're responsible for a lot. So it's an important job and. I agree with you. I think Derek, who I've known for uh, many years, is a, a a good nominee. I don't agree with him about a lot of things, as he knows from my uh, rather critical review of a book he wrote at the, uh, that was published just at the turn of the administration back in uh, the winter of 2016 and 17. Uh, but he has uh, a lot of experience. He's a former Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs former counselor of the department of state the linchpin of the
1: entire u.s
0: government one of your distinguished <laughs> successors in that job um he uh he's been a uh, senior director at the white house uh so he he has all the requisite you know range of experience uh, for the job he's got a terrific temperament too you know as much as i uh, disagree with him uh you know, he is he's a partisan Democrat, but uh, without being partisan, if that makes sense. I mean, he he understands that the problems that administrations face, uh, you know, transcend partisan lines and, and that people of goodwill are always trying to solve these problems, you know, in every administration.
1: Yeah. And and of course, on top of that, um, and, you know, I I saw you uh, fulfill this role. you You are the top diplomat. For the Defense department and and uh since it's the Defense Department that has all the toys and the airplanes and stuff like that um, you actually have a quite a strong role in the make of American foreign policy so i you know I think it is an important thing and I think as a voice, I suspect he will be i everything that I saw about things that Colin Kyle said and Colin has his strengths was he was one of these people who was very fearful of Russian escalation and um you know just saying well it's going to take 18 months to train the ukrainians to fly f16s which turns out to be wrong by about a factor of 3 um or or even more so i think he, i think it will be it'll be better on that uh but as you say it's a very centralized administration and ultimately joe biden will be making um, will be making the calls on this
0: but one thing we should note, though, which is, it may be a while before Derek gets confirmed, and that is not something that is, you know, s- simply an issue for Derek. That is a- an ongoing problem because of the of the uh, hold that Senator Tuberville of Alabama has placed, essentially, on all DOD nominations.
1: So could, could you explain that to our our listeners? Because I think. Actually, a surprising number of people don't know that one senator, uh, a senator who in this case, by the way, has not spent a day in uniform, is not an expert on national security, that's for sure, um, can all of a sudden completely gum up the work so you can't promote any generals, including the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. How how does that happen?
0: Well, because by tradition, any one member of the Senate can put a hold on nominations and uh, frequently... These holds are used uh, by members of the Senate to extract other promises uh, from the administration or other objectives that senators may have. We've we've got something similar, by the way, with uh, ambassadorial nominations uh, because State Department nominations have been held up by uh, a combination of Senators Rand Paul and Ted Cruz. It's bipartisan, by the way. I mean, right now the main bad actors here are Republicans, but Democrats have done this too. I have scars myself <laughs> yeah. uh, from having been held for a number of months by the late Carl Levin, when he was the ranking and then uh, chairman of the uh, Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, had nothing to do with me. I mean, he told me that, you know, he liked me, but he wanted some document. He said, I, you know, I like you. I didn't like your predecessor, but I want some documents from his office. I read all the documents and I said, you know, Senator, I'd love to give you these documents. If I could give them to you, I would hand them over right now. There's nothing in them that I'm concerned that you would see or, or a problem but you know because they were from other agencies of the government they weren't controlled by DOD and because the white house had invoked executive privilege you know i was i wasn't even in a position to give him these documents um, you know at the end of the day i only got confirmed and it's a very uncomfortable feeling by the way i was i was uh, given a recess appointment by president bush in the summer of 2005 and then was in that position for about six or seven months, and it's it's a horribly awkward position because first of all you've got a clock ticking, right? Uh, you're like the coach in Cinderella, right? Uh, when the clock strikes midnight and the Congress adjourns, that Congress adjourns when you got the recess appointment, you turn back into a pumpkin, and you have to be either renominated or you're terminated. Uh, so you've got the clock ticking. Every day, you're, you know, making hundreds of little minor decisions about things. You're acting on all sorts of issues, taking positions, and you know that you're ticking people off. You know, there's someone with every decision you make. Someone is, you know, a winner and someone is a loser, and the losers are going to get angry at you. You know, it's very, very uncomfortable. In my case, in the end of the day, uh, Senator Bill Frist, who was then the Senate Majority Leader, his chiefs had been, were Mark Esper and then later Steve Began. And, you know, they basically ultimately uh, dropped a cloture petition to invoke cloture, which kind of breaks the hold. Right. So if if, because then the senator who's holding has got to come up with 40 votes to hold you, it can't just be a one, you know, a personal thing. And um, I I got confirmed by unanimous consent because there was no opposition to my nomination. But that's how our very broken system, unfortunately, functions right now.
1: Yeah, I if I heard you correctly, you say this is a tradition. It's not that There's nothing one. in
0: law or in the Constitution. Right.
1: I mean that that's the thing that's mind boggling. Um it, it was such an abuse It's a norm. Yeah. It well, it's an abuse of power is is what it is. And I just hope he, he sees reason because you know, with I mean it, it there really are limits to what uh acting people can do. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's profoundly demoralizing to people who have big jobs ahead. They know they've got these big jobs ahead. They need to uh, act on them. You're holding up people who have long records of service to this country. It's just, it's contemptible,
0: is my basic view. It's a, a real challenge for civil military relations now. I mean, we've, right now, we, we could, if this continues past September 30th, we could be without a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The president's just nominated a new uh, chief of naval operations. She might not get confirmed. The uh, Marine Corps has got an acting commandant uh, since uh, your former student, Dave Berger, has left uh, as commandant, and there's no uh, com- confirmed replacement. Um, we'll be talking about civil military relations in a few weeks, I think, with our friend Peter yeah. Fever, f- friend of the show and uh, a, a multiple-time uh, guest, and he'll be back for, as his new book is coming out, we'll be discussing that with him, but this is one of these cases where you just you know, have to shake your head about what people are thinking when it comes to political policy dispute as opposed to the larger national security.
1: Well, let's uh, just hope that listeners to the podcast who are constituents of Senator uh, Tuberville will uh, let his office know that they think he's doing d- terrible damage to national security and he should knock it off or face the consequences at the uh At the ballot box. I was wondering, maybe could we move on? There have been some very interesting writings about internal politics in Russia. And of course, uh, you served there, you followed very closely. Um, I will just open up with one thought, which is as I think I mentioned to you, the the Prigozhin putsch or attempted putsch happened as I was coming back from Ukraine with a couple of very senior Polish, uh, one official, one very senior, non-official. And what struck me was their consensus that, A, this is not uh, Prigozhin acting on his own, that there are, in their words, men in the shadows who are either supporting him or maybe even directing him, and that, B, um, Putin comes out of this much, no, no matter how it ended, they thought he comes out much weaker. So, and I have to say that, you know, now that we're several weeks after the event, that those seem to me like pretty good diagnoses, but I wonder: uh, Do you share that those views? And just in general, what's your take?
0: We had our friend Steve Sistonevich on, of course, talking with us about this in the immediate aftermath. Uh, and Steve was making the case of uh, that this could paradoxically strengthen, uh, you know, Putin's position. And I, you know, I can see the argument for that in the sense that Prigozhin's his complaint his reason for launching the mutiny was, as, as far as we could tell, trying to get Putin on side in his own dispute with uh, Shoigu, the defense minister, who's currently in North Korea celebrating the 75th anniversary of the armistice, I guess, um, or the 70th anniversary of the armistice. And uh, Shoigu, I'm sorry, Shoigu and Karasimov, the chief of defense. Uh, and, and in that sense, those two have been sort of confirmed in their position their critics are being weeded out et cetera. so at least in the short term it certainly seems as if you know putin is maybe consolidating some of his position however it's certainly the case that the revolt has shown i think how frail the system is uh, and how vulnerable it is if not to uh, you know a coup by prigozhin perhaps a more successful one by someone else in the future But it's also now become part of something that is broader, which is a purge of the military of leaders who Putin, I think, has and Shoigu and Gerasimov have reason to believe were in sympathy or harmony with Prigozhin's complaints, if not with the actual coup itself. So General Surovikin, for instance, uh, who is the author of the Suravikin line, the fortifications we were talking about earlier in the show. Hasn't been seen in a month. Lots of reports he's being not only detained uh, and held, but being tortured. Um, don't know, obviously, if that's true or not. Uh, but he was by far the most competent commander uh, you know, involved in this war so far. And he's now kind of off the table you know, as a commander. Uh, other commanders uh, have been removed uh, as well. And General uh, Toplinski, the commander of the airborne, which is one of the more capable elements of the uh, Russian military, whose fighters are actually uh, putting up some of the best fight, I think, right now uh, in the face of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, by all accounts, um, is at risk. Yeah, it hasn't been, you know, uh, cashiered or arrested yet, but there are ongoing rumors that he might be. So. This kind of leadership churn, and you were adverting to that in your earlier comments, uh, Elliot, can have real battlefield effects, as you know. And and One of the things that's happening here is that loyalty to the incompetent leadership of Shoigu and Garasimov being rewarded, and competence and criticism, which could lead to perhaps more successful adaptation on the battlefield, is being punished, uh, which is not exactly a a sort of recipe for great success in wartime. And, you know, both of us, I think, have read this article by uh, Simon Montefiore, who uh, has written Court of the Red Tsar about Stalin and written about the Romanovs and very knowledgeable uh, historian of Russia, uh, article in Foreign Policy, in which he talks about what Putin's going through with the generals is sort of re- re- really not unique to Putin. This has got deep kind of roots in Russian history where the Tsar has to be not only, you know, the all-knowing, all-powerful Oz, but also has to be, you know, commander-in-chief and who has to be seen as a successful commander, but also has to be fearful uh, that the military is going to, uh, you know, supplant him and overthrow him. And, And he has plenty of examples going back to the founding of the Romanov dynasty to make this point. I wonder what you make of, of that argument.
1: I think it makes sense. For me, the thing that's stunning in all this is uh, that Purgosian is still alive and walking the surface of the earth uh, that, you know, Putin did not feel he could simply have him arrested. Um, it, it is, you know, th- it's clear that there have been purges of the military um, which again would suggest, and there are other stories that have come out, all of which suggest that, yeah, there really was some pretty high level uh, support for Um There was another report that Putin was just sort of bewildered about what to do for a day or two at the beginning. and
0: That report, by the way, which was in the Washington Post, it was in part reported by Catherine Belton, uh, the former Financial Times correspondent in Moscow, who's correspondent, who's terrific, and her book, Putin's People, is one of the most deeply reported uh, analyses of Putin's system of, of government um, that I've read. And uh, you know, she ended up being sued in uh, courts in, in in the UK by, among others, Roman, uh, Roman Abramovich, one of the oligarchs, in attempt to shut the you know the book down. So it's a, that's an important story, I think.
1: Yeah, I, I guess it, it I mean, what does it add up to me? To me, it all adds up to Putin being weak, uh, or ha- at least having been weakened by all this. What I find myself wondering is, what, what does the shoe, the other shoe drop? I, in other words, I, I thought Steve laid out a very as persuasive a case as is possible that this is strengthening, but I just I find myself not able to believe it um the the question that i have in my mind is at what point did these people begin killing each other and uh i won't be at all surprised if that were to happen
0: well some of that's already happened right there've been any yeah. number of people who've met you know unfortunate accidents typically near windows from high rise buildings so yeah so i
1: think that i think that happens and you know I, and i and i guess i tend to believe that um as people high up both in the military and the civilian side get more and more paranoid. And, you know, you can never be sure who your friends are, who your enemies are, or I wouldn't say friends, who's aligned with you and who are your enemies. I think those are the the kind of two, the only two categories that, that really exist Um, that that begins to affect decision-making on the battlefield and in ultimately in pernicious ways. You're also seeing um, Russia continue to expand if you will, alternative enemies, and particularly the Ruskvardia, the National Guard, and you know, give them heavy weapons and stuff like that. So it means you don't fully trust the military to stand by the regime. So I, I think they're in trouble. You know, the the conversation I'd like to report to you in all this uh, is I had a conversation with a very senior, uh, very senior person from a an important nation country. Let's put it that way, and. They were, uh, you know, they were very, somebody who's extremely well-informed and extremely smart. And he was basically echoing Henry Kissinger's line that, you know, we don't want a Russia in turmoil, so we have to find a way through this, and so on and so forth. And and I, you know, I found myself reacting to him and saying, you know, on the one hand, people say to the United States you know you fools you thought you could remake afghanistan you thought you could shape iraqi politics don't you understand that that it was never going to work um and so we're idiots for that but then we're being irresponsible if we don't exert complete control over russian internal politics a country much bigger much more you know uh much harder to influence particularly since we're not occupying it uh and I, I I I I think a lot of this thinking about the prospects of internal chaos in Russia don't take adequate account of the fact that we just don't have a whole lot to say about it. You know, we can plan to adapt to it, we can plan to take advantage of it, we can plan to minimize the risks to ourselves if it does happen. But, you know, we we're kidding ourselves if we think we get to control any of this because I I don't believe right. that we do.
0: Right. No, I agree. Uh, th- this goes to the whole issue of, you know, we can't push too hard and, you know, in uh, in behalf of a Ukrainian victory because it could destabilize Russia. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we will never know, you know, what might be the detonator that will set off, you know, a, a chain of events in Russia uh, that um, could land in a number of different directions, in part because You know, this uh, regime is so opaque, it's very difficult to know what's going on. It's all controlled by, you know, a a, uh, one person and a very small group of retainers. And and by the way, Russia is not the only, uh, you know, country that uh, that we have to deal with like this. I mean, we just had the Chinese foreign minister disappear for about a month and now he's been replaced by his predecessor. Um, What do you make of that?
1: No, I I think it's very much to your point that you know, a, a sophisticated authoritarian regime is frequently very opaque to the outside, you know, from the outside. But but there's an additional point which um, maybe we should. Uh, I know we're coming to an end here, which which is that it's the nature of these regimes that they look kind of strong and their leaders look like they're in complete control uh, when at some point they're not and things kind of fall apart. And and at the same time, uh, there are also regimes where they can never be entirely sure who their friends are, you know, uh, and where people really stand. And of course, they've always had to alienate somebody to get to where they are. They may have had to have, even have them killed. So, you know, there's a, a constant uh, threat of paranoia that uh, runs, runs through this. And it, it just seems to me that, you know, whenever people begin to believe that these regimes are you know, stable, solid, and able to be farsighted because their leaders don't have any domestic worries that that's wrong. They do have domestic worries.
0: I guess what worries me about your description, with with which I completely agree, is that our tendency in the US when we think we're dealing with paranoid leaders is to say, oh, you know, we have to be careful not to trigger their paranoia. And so we begin to kind of negotiate with ourselves about what we will and won't do uh, out of fear that we're going to trigger the, you know, the paranoia or create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, there was a little bit of this uh, during the Prigozhin rebellion when the administration was apparently at great pains to tell the Russians we had nothing to do with this. Which I can't really tell whether they were. You know trolling the russians or whether they really were trying to convey that to the russians i can't think of anything more calculated to make putin worry that we were actually somehow involved in this by rushing to tell him that we weren't
1: yeah well it's also i think it's uh to repeat an old uh, tagline it's confusing foreign policy with psychotherapy mm-hmm. uh and Th- that's always a mistake, but it it also there's also an element of hubris in it. It's that we actually know how to reassure these people and the answer is I don't think we do i mean uh because uh you know even the people i don't i disagree with most deeply on foreign policy issues they're not vladimir putin they you know they don't have the experience that he's had of you know, rubbing people out and uh, you know, establishing a really manipulative dictatorship. that That's not who they are. Uh, I mean, even Donald Trump. Donald Trump, I think, thinks he understands Vladimir Putin. And I i don't think he does any better a job of it. In fact, I'm
0: pretty sure he does a worse job of it than uh, you or me. I'm pretty sure of that. Um... You know, look, I think one of the mistakes we make, and I think we've discussed this on previous shows, is that we treat Russia like a normal nation state when, in fact, it's a criminal enterprise with a variety of of clans. That, uh, and, and by the way, that's one of the explanations for why Prigozhin is being treated differently, uh, you know, than the generals who may have supported him, because for all of his, you know, flaws, uh, you know, A, the system needs the capabilities he created in Wagner uh, to intervene in, in Syria, sub-Saharan Africa, Libya, uh, you know, et cetera, uh, not to mention the media empire he controls, uh, which included the Internet Research Agency, which was involved in the 2016 election interference in the United States. A bunch of those people were indicted by Robert Mueller. So there are sort of still spoils that have to be you know, uh, taken away from Pogosian or parts of his empire that have to be taken away parts. He's going to keep. Um,
1: but also, you
0: know, I, I, not that I think Putin is in the least bit sentimental, but he, you know, th- this is someone he's been tied to since the 1990s. And he does have recur to all these people from his past in St. Petersburg in terms of those he surrounds himself with. Um, so you have to understand it in, in terms of like, uh, you know, a you know, criminal gang mentality. I mean, our mutual teacher, uh, Al Bernstein, you know, would be counseling people uh, who want to understand, uh, you know, Putin's Russia to read The Godfather rather than, you know, uh, any academic study by, you know, uh, someone uh, on Russia. So I, I think that's right.
1: You know, we started the podcast today with Walter Scott, we ended up with The Godfather. Um,
0: before we, before we finish, though, I wanted to just uh, ask you one thing, because as someone who is you know, a strong supporter of Israel, I have been really troubled by uh, you know, what I see going on there right now in terms of the judicial reform and um, the protests uh, on both sides. Not that Israel couldn't use some judicial reform. I mean, it's obviously a country without a written constitution. The judiciary has arrogated to itself a lot of power over the last few years, but this is a judicial reform that is being rammed through without any kind of social consensus and which seems at least somewhat uh, inflected by uh, the prime minister's personal legal troubles and I wonder if you're as distraught about this as I am.
1: Oh, I am. And in some ways, even more so, you know, my uh, wife and I, we we have a lot of Israeli friends. Um, she has a few relatives. And so we've been communicating with them. And uh, people, including people who have had very senior political intelligence and military positions, are well beyond distraught. And I think the, the reason is that you know, the the immediate judicial reform is basically to take a, a whack at the so-called reasonableness standard. So, the, this was a, a legal theory that was invented by uh, the chief of their Supreme Court, Aaron Barak, in the 80s, and you know it has allowed the court to exercise a check on uh, the Knesset, which is a unicameral legislature uh, elected on the basis of proportional representation but the the issue which is triggering everybody, it's not just that this was done without any attempt whatsoever really to create a uh, internal consensus on a weighty thing that there's a whole slew of further pieces of legislation in the pipeline which will do all kinds of things. so they you know they've already A situation where one of the, uh, you know, some of the worst ministers in this government, one of them is actually, um, um, what's the name, Ben Gvir, gets to run his own militia. Uh, There are, uh, it's clear that this will, you know, that the part of the agenda is speeding the annexation of the West Bank. Um, Part of this also is. Uh, obscene payoffs to the ultra-Orthodox community, which basically just takes from the state and doesn't uh, give. I mean, they don't serve in the military, don't pay taxes. And and what I think you're seeing is the Israel that, that I knew and that I was very fond of, which is a combination of secular and sort of religious but quite modern uh, people um, with essentially Western liberal democratic values of a kind that I think would be familiar to most Americans up against a, a very dangerous coalition of, uh, both secular and religious national ethno nationalists of a kind of a very ugly sort of Victor Orban kind of, uh, stripe and the ultra Orthodox who are, um, you know, basically just exploiting the state for their own purposes, and have reject modernity uh, and reject you know the kind of lives that we live um, in a in a thorough way, and you know have views that I consider pretty benighted on women and gays and and lots of other things. You know, and then you have an Arab minority which is watching this and is kind of terrified by what this all means. And it's being rammed through on a very narrow majoritarian basis. It's, the polls indicate that this does not have majority support among the Israeli population now. If there was an election now, the results would be different. And, and it's not ending here. You know, the uh, There are real prospects, I think, for vi- serious violence. There's already been violence on the streets uh, for a lot more um, you, for the flight of the people who've made Israel the startup nation and so on. So it's a really serious business. And it's I would good news in a way for the podcast, I suppose, that we'll have a uh, we'll be having a very interesting uh writer who's just written a book about Israel to explore this further, but uh Is Isabel Kirshner. But I'll I'll just say that um no at the moment I'm I'm quite worried about it.
0: I am too. Um it's a sort of a, a grim down note to end the podcast on, but I you no, know, I I'm I'm in agreement with you. I I find this very very distressing. I'm looking forward to uh, discussing it with uh, Isabel Kershner, the New York Times correspondent uh, in Jerusalem, who is a uh, has written a very interesting and nuanced book about this. We'll have her in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll have uh, Christopher Miller of the Financial Times, uh, whose book uh, War Came to Us about uh, the war in Ukraine, another terrific book on uh, in an upcoming episode as well. But uh, for today, that's uh, all we have for Shield of the Republic. Always good to be with you, Eric.